2: to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today.
1: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network for Russia and Eurasian Studies. I'm your host, Jennifer Yeremeyeva, and today we're making something of a departure from our normal format, as I'm here with Clem Cecil, who is the director of Pushkin House in London, the UK's oldest independent Russian cultural centre. I've asked Clem to come on the podcast because I will be interviewing some of the authors who are shortlisted for this year's prestigious Pushkin House Russian Book Prize. This is awarded annually for the best nonfiction work about Russia. And Clem has very kindly agreed to speak with us about Pushkin House and the Book Prize and this year's finalists. Clem, thanks so much for making some time for us today.
3: Thank you, Jennifer.
1: Let's begin with Pushkin House itself because I think not all of our readers may be familiar with the work that you do. Can you tell us a little bit about it?
3: Sure. So, um, as you say, Pushkin House is the UK's oldest independent Russian cultural centre. It's a bit misleading in a way to call it a Russian cultural centre because it's a centre for Russian culture. But we're kind of an anomaly because we're an oasis of Russia within London. And we were set up by Russian emigres in 1954 and they were first and second generation emigres, and they wanted a place where they could gather themselves and kind of touch their culture, kind of come back in touch with their culture that they'd left behind. But also equally importantly, they wanted to share it with their new British friends. So it was a place where outstanding Russian scholars, artists, cultural figures, spoke, presented, had exhibitions, but it's also where British scholars presented new research. Um, So it was this kind of melting pot of of the the most interesting aspects of Russian studies, really, mostly cultural, um, in this house in Labyrinth Grove. And it was always very informal. It was just a a sitting room where you could fit like 30, 40 people max. And we've got these wonderful old pictures from the first Pushkin House meetings, where they were called Pushkin Club meetings, with um, women wearing hats and men wearing suits and everyone smoking a lot Um, (laughs) and but actually even though people don't wear hats anymore and people don't smoke inside we still have that same informal atmosphere and we moved we moved premises in 2005 from Notting Hill which is a kind of residential part of London to a much busier part of London we're now in Bloomsbury just round the corner from the British Museum so we're kind of on the beaten track now and that was the idea of the move was to put pushkin house on the cultural map of london but we still have an informal atmosphere we still have a fairly small salon where you can fit maximum 65 people but we continue in the same spirit with freedom of speech as a core principle and this sort of informal atmosphere uh encouraging people to come and share their research in the old days when it was set up they would have occasionally soviet um scholars writers artists and so on Uh, It wasn't because they were a Soviet institution, but they were interested in kind of keeping the link alive with with Russia, Soviet Union. Um, So they would grab whoever was coming through London, which was quite a rare thing then. Um, Now, after the fall of the Soviet Union and free travel and so on, it's not so much emigres who come to us, because you don't have emigres anymore in the traditional sense of the word. People come and go from Russia. But we still grab people, grab Russians as they come through London and we also, and they own it, and ask them to come and speak, scholars, artists and and so on. And also we invite Russians living abroad. So we just have an, art, an artist called Yevgeny Feeks who lives in New York. He did a wonderful exhibition called Mother Time about LGBT issues. So, um, that's that I mean, I could talk a lot longer, but that that gives some flavour of our origins and how we're still in touch with them today.
1: I see. And I can testify I've been to several events at Pushkin House and it's a wonderfully warm and welcoming atmosphere. And I've actually spoken there on on um mayonnaise of all things about Mm. russian food and it was a really marvelous i think it's before you took over as director um it was a marvelously fun evening um so i do encourage listeners to um, learn more about pushkin house and if you're passing through london to find out what's going on there because there really is always something going on isn't there
3: yeah oh that's so great that you spoke there and i'm really glad it was a positive experience it was fantastic yeah we do um Our food-related events are are really popular. There's such curiosity about food culture in Russia, um, and it's such a rich line of research, so that's fantastic. Yeah, no, definitely listeners outside of the UK, and we have podcasts, we have a blog. You know, we've got quite a lot of material on the website that people can access, even if they're not actually in London.
1: Mm-hmm. And we'll put all that information um, in the show notes for people to easily access. But let's get back to the prize, um, because that's those are the interviews that we'll be um, we'll be doing over the next few weeks. What is the origin of the prize? It hasn't been going for very long, but it's already gained quite a lot of notoriety, hasn't it?
3: Yeah, that's right. This is just the seventh year of the prize, in fact, and the idea behind the prize. Uh, which is awarded to the best book in English, non-fiction about Russia, published in the preceding year. The idea, really, was that we present so many books at Pushkin House about Russia that it was felt that a prize was needed, some kind of discussion was needed, general discussion around the books uh, to try and kind of give the public an idea of the vast variety of books that are published every year about Russia. We felt it would be a really good tool to um to have a positive discussion about russia um every year and also a great tool for spreading the word about pushkin house and our work within russia and well all over the world because our judges come from all over the world and so it's a kind of promotional thing for pushkin house but that's very much to do with our mission and um so, and our mission is to bring the best of, of Russian culture to keep the conversation going about it outside of Russia.
1: And can you speak a little bit um, about how you choose the books or how do the authors get nominated for the prize?
3: Yeah, so um, for, for firstly, we choose the jury. So that's a real challenge every year to find five people who would be suitable and create a kind of varied jury. Journalists, people from think tanks, writers. Um, academics, um, curators, experts in their field, all sorts of things, and we like to try and combine Russian and and, and, and non-Russian, and so the Russians have to be able to read in English, because the list is enormous. Um, I mean, if you were to stab a guest, um, Jennifer, how many books would you think that they had to look at to get before they get down to the shortlist? Well,
1: the shortlist is six, so I, I'm imagining something like 20
3: no, they have to look at about ninety books. Oh my
1: lord! And through yeah. what what period of time? Because that's that's a challenge. Wow! Well, Even for I those who love books,
3: it is a really big challenge. I mean, it's a pretty intense experience being a judge on the prize because they only have about three, they only have about three months because they usually come to the shortlist by the end of March. But then there is room for discussion. There's till mid June to to fine tune to fine tune that. But because we announce. Wait, we announce at the end of April normally. So we like them to read the books by the end of March. Then there's a month to, to pick up on books that the other members of the jury might have read that you might not have seen. And then, so, so really it's four months. It's four months to look at 90 books. Look at is a very gentle word of saying, read.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I noticed
3: um, that you,
1: many of your judges are past winners of the prize. Is that correct? I noticed Douglas Smith is, is a judge.
3: Yeah, no, um, Andrew Jack Andrew set Jack. up the prize. Um, no, no, no. Sorry, you're right. Douglas Smith, you're absolutely right. Because it was the idea of Andrew Jack, who's the chairman of this prize, and he set it up seven years ago, and he's former chairman of Pushkin House. He, it was his idea to invite the winner to be in the jury the following year. Mm-hmm. So as you say, Douglas Smith, he won, um, I think it was the first prize. And he then also went on to become the main sponsor of the prize, which for which we are massively grateful to him and his partner, Stephanie, and I think listeners will
1: will know his book Former People About the Nobility. Um, and that's the, that's the book he won the prize for, but he's also known for his book about Rasputin. Isn't that right? Yeah, exactly.
3: Precisely okay. that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And last year you had a very interesting winner. Um, Alexandra, I'm I'm not sure I can say her name right, correctly. Is it Petri? Uh Perry, 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 Perry. 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 Okay. Yeah, yeah you, she Yeah.
3: Yeah. Alexis Perry is outstanding. She is um the book um the war within is about the blockade of Leningrad and it was it was a really I was a really uh quite stunned at the the choice because it was um a very intense no actually Jennifer I'd like to say that again if you don't mind. Sure was, go
1: ahead yeah. um I'm just making a note of the time it's nine twenty-six. and do you want me to ask the question again? Yeah if you don't mind. Okay um okay we'll start again it's Last year's uh, winner was Alexis Perry's book about the Siege of Leningrad. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because it was an unusual choice.
3: Yeah, it's an extraordinary book, The War Within. Um, Alexis Perry drew on um, over 100, I think it was 126 un, previously un, unused diaries, so unused in research, unpublished diaries, um, and to 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 have a fresh look at the blockade and to really look at what people went through and she discovered that people in their diaries were going through these existential processes very personal um which were they kind of belied or they'd certainly added to people's understanding of the blockade which which generally we all sort of understand from a kind of big history kind of meta history point of view and she was really looking at, as the title implies, at at the internal struggles that people were going through. Um, And so it was incredibly moving and very enriching in terms of looking at the blockade. Um, And it's a really interesting work because it combines history and sort of psychoanalysis, actually, to give this very insightful and we are kind of inward looking kind of interpretation and analysis, very personal of the war. So it wasn't just generals and editors kind of thing. It was like the common man on the street um, and just following their, their, their very grueling experience, I mean, incredibly grueling and how that impacted on their relationship with themselves, their relationship with God, their relationship with their family. It, it was, and what, what, starvation and being cut off does to a person
1: and the the finalists this year have also produced a range of fascinating and very moving books in some cases they cover an extraordinarily broad range of topics from the history of organized crime to an interpretation of western culture during the thaw during the 50s and 60s can you take us through the six finalists and their books
3: yeah, no, very <laughs> yeah. Very briefly. Yeah, very briefly. We've got a great collection this year. The first thing that that is notable about it is that they're all kind of 20th century books. They're all about Russia stroke the Soviet Union in the 20th century. So um, as you say, the one about organized crime, uh, The Vori by Mark Galliotti, is all about um the, the kind of is all about the sort of um organized crime network in Russia looking at things like the prison network, the language, the jargon, how um, the prison network and traditions then kind of translated themselves into everyday life when these people were released, how big crime infiltrated right up to the top of the state, how it's kind of infected every aspect of Russian life in a way. Um, And it's a chilling, fascinating read and analysis. Then you've got Ben McIntyre, the spy and the traitor. And Ben McIntyre, who's a journalist for The Times, um, he's kind of made his name by writing about spies. And this is about Alia Gordievsky. And it's absolutely incredible story. It's a thriller. You, you can't put it down once you start reading it. You've got Maybe Esther by Katya Petrovsko, which I, I understand, Jennifer, that you're reviewing, which is a fascinating book. Um, it's a, it's a study of her, she tracks her her fragmented family tree and discovers extraordinary things about her family. Ooh, and it kind of covers the whole 20th century history of the Soviet Union uh, from a very personal point of view. Then you've got Chernobyl by Sergei Polokhi, which is a, a mega kind of history of Chernobyl, which is kind of probably... Uh, well it's got the most distance of any book to date on the disaster so it's got this massive sweep in it which so it gives the disaster an incredible context um and again it's a it's an amazing bit of writing um we've got 1983 the world's at the brink which is about the nuclear kind of uh, standoff this is very very kind of peak cold war reading by taylor downing and then um to see paris and die that you mentioned um and the Soviet Lives of Western Culture, this is a really moving book for Pushkin House because it's all about the emigre experience. It's about what Soviets thought emigration was going to be like. It's what they thought the West was like. And, and, and it's also about the reality of that experience. It's kind of heartbreaking, but it's also a, a, a kind of, it also really shows how, just how creative the Soviets were in their relationship to the West. They, I mean, the, about the translations, for example, of Catcher in the Rye. How how they kind of made aspects of Western culture their own and thus made them into new works in some ways. And the generosity with which they looked at the West. Um, I find that I find that a very, very important book for me as someone who's been looking at Russia for a long time because it really helps understand the internal process.
1: Yes, and I think it says a lot about our ongoing. I don't want to say love-hate relationship between the West and Russia, but that the sort of the tension of that, mm. of that relationship that has so much enthusiasm and misunderstanding on both sides.
3: Absolutely. Um, but, yeah, I think that's right. The ambiguities and, yeah, the huge differences in culture. Um, yeah.
1: Okay. Well,
3: um, having read all six of the
1: books, I have to say I, the judges have their work cut out for them. And um, this may well be a photo finish. Um, And the prize is awarded on the 12th of June. Is that correct?
3: That's right. We have this really exciting dinner when all all the authors and all the judges gather and it's announced at the dinner. Exciting times.
1: Well, Clem, thanks so much for taking time out of your very busy week um, to speak with us today about Pushkin House and this year's Pushkin House shortlist. Just quickly, can you give listeners the website so they can find all the more information about both um, online?
3: Absolutely. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for, um, for for taking this interest in the prize. We're really delighted to have you, you particularly your expert eyes on this. Um, our website is um, pushkinhouse.org and then... There's a section there on the book prize. And any of you who are in England on the 12th of June, I think we've got a handful of tickets left for the dinner and it's a great evening. So I really recommend it. Oh, it'll be a
1: a fantastic evening of Russian culture and um, literature and friendship and um, cross-cultural encounters. Thank you, Clem. Thanks again. Um, I've been speaking with Clem Cecil, director of London's Pushkin House. I'm your host, Jennifer Yeremeyeva. Don't go away. In a moment, we will speak with one of the Pushkin House prize finalists about their book. Hello and welcome to the new books in Russian and Eurasian studies. I'm your host Jennifer Yeremeyeva and today I'm here with Eleanor Gilbert who is an assistant professor of Soviet history in the college at University of Chicago. We're here to discuss Eleanor's recent book, To See, Paris, and Die, The Soviet Lives of Western Culture, which was published in 2018 by Harvard University Press, and it was shortlisted for this year's prestigious Pushkin House Prize. I'm delighted it brings Eleanor to the New Books Network. Eleanor, welcome.
0: Uh, thank you. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you for having me.
1: Oh, we're delighted to have you, and congratulations on a fascinating book. Um, I think we're going to just jump right into it. Um, Your academic career seems to have focused very assiduously on on an interesting cultural hinge of Soviet and Russian history. To See Paris and Die focuses on the Thaw, as did your previous book, The Thaw, Soviet Society and Culture during the 1950s and 60s. And As a Russian historian, it seems to me that um, the thaw doesn't get as much attention as some of the more turbulent eras of Russian and Soviet history. And that's one of the reasons I found your book so intriguing. And I wondered if you would take us into the discussion by sort of outlining what the thaw was and to tell listeners why you became so interested in it.
0: Sure. I actually, um, when I started this project, um, which was some years ago when I started uh, looking around for a project, uh, which was some years ago um i think your your statement that um the uh this period uh you know is not is not uh has not had as much scholarship as um as say the uh revolutionary period or the stalinist 1930s um back in those days that probably was true but since then a lot of wonderful scholarship has appeared on um on the 50s and 60s scholarship dealing with um cinema and with literature and with um the memories uh, of 1917 and of the 1930s uh with consumption and um Khrushchev's uh, housing project uh and all sorts of other topics you know social cultural political um you know the power struggle for Stalin succession a uh, wonderful work on uh, rehabilitation on the uh restructuring and um downsizing of the gulag the transformation of the of soviet labor camps so i see my work as very much uh in the vein of this uh recent new scholarship uh and um the but when i when i started out uh I- indeed the period wasn't as uh studied as it is today and it was one of the motivations uh one of the several motivations for why um i became interested in um in uh this time period um and particularly in the topic that i um that i investigate and that is the uh the opening of uh soviet uh culture to uh Western imports. Um, When I was growing up in the the late Soviet decades, uh, there was quite a lot of um, non-Soviet things in my childhood, or sort of Soviet and non-Soviet at the same time, non-Soviet in origin uh, and Soviet in its habitus. Um, These were the best childhood books. These were films for which, you know, enormous lines would form at, uh, at movie theaters, kind of snaking around the corner, uh, and, um, you know, adults would wait patiently, but I remember being, you know, a kid and being grumpy and and sort of very bored standing in this line. Um, I recall cities would fall silent and streets would empty out uh, when the first uh, um, soap operas appeared and you could see the courtyards all colored in blue from the television sets. Um, and so, I, you know, I wanted to understand how this could have happened. And uh when and why and by what channels all this arrived in the Soviet Union, uh, and how and what was the process by which these imports became um such an inseparable part of Soviet life. Uh and so in the book I tried to answer these questions, and these questions took me right back to my sort of initial interest in the 50s and 60s. Um and that is sort of how I I you know I turned, I combined both the interest in, in this period and in these. Uh, in these questions. Uh, and um, I turned specifically to the 50s and 60s, because that is when uh, Westernization became uh, uh, really a mass phenomenon, no longer prerogative uh, of the culturally, but a uh, broad strata of the population. Um, so that's sort of the, the origins of, of my interest, or of the several origins of my interest in this period. And
1: thank you for that. Um, you're When in putting your book together, I was struck by how many different kinds of sources, primary sources, you gather together in the book um, about both the facilitators um, of this huge trove of, of Western literature, those are the translators, the publishers, But also you focus on the audience, the people who consumed um, these books and movies and paintings. What made it so engrossing for me as a reader, and I think fascinating to our listeners, many of whom are academics like yourself, is that you didn't limit yourself just to Moscow, St. Petersburg, Kazan. You really spread out over the whole Soviet Union. And I think we'd all be fascinated to learn, how did you do it? How did you manage to gather up this immense amount of material? What were your methodologies how did you go about it
0: well i i worked primarily um in moscow's archives and the nature of the um of this decentralizing nature uh of the soviet system was such that quite a lot from other places ended up in moscow uh, quite a lot of documents uh, from other places would end up in Moscow, uh, either as letters from um, locales or as reports. Um, and so I was um, looking, I was working with institutions, um, with journals, publishing houses, uh, film distribution agencies with um, the central radio um, and also with uh, uh, the personal records of cultural mediators, so important cultural figures who took upon themselves this role of uh, mediating Western texts for Soviet audiences. And in those archives, besides the uh, the documents on cultural exchange or the documents on uh, distribution or on translation or on, um, sometimes, uh, on censorship, uh, there were just thousands of documents on uh, you know, a, a, an embarrassment of riches. Uh, of, from uh from the audiences. Um these were uh letters that people wrote to journals uh with questions, uh with requests for to publish something. Uh people wrote to publishing houses, um to film distribution agencies sometimes to protest um something that they uh they uh, saw in movie theaters sometimes to request something that they read about but hadn't yet seen in movie theaters. Um, People wrote um, in response to radio programs, and they wrote a lot to cultural mediators. They wrote a lot to these um, important Soviet cultural figures, prominent cultural figures um, who told stories, uh, who published uh, texts about uh, the West. Um, They wrote with questions, with their uh, response, you know, responses, their reactions. And what mattered to me uh, were the individuals in these letters. That is how people read and how they listened you know how they listened to the radio they took notes for example right what kinds of texts were available to them what kinds of texts reached them uh and by which by which means so sometimes they would say that you know they live in this sort of uh dusty settlement uh you know 15 to 20 kilometers from a regional center and they would go uh to the library in the regional center and they would get the volumes of uh, a journal that i was um that i was examining uh, that published uh, foreign, broadly, Western, but broadly foreign, foreign literature in Russian translation. Um, I was interested in how they uh, tabulated information that was available to them from newspapers with other types of information. Um, I was interested in how they got, and they usually tell uh, how they get, these texts were very much in demand and very much in deficit, right, and so, uh, in short, you know, shortages of these texts. And so, I was interested in how people got them, right? Sometimes they stood, you know, the entire night in line at a Soyuz Pichet Kiosk. Sometimes they check it out from the library or they subscribe to a journal. Uh, And, you know, there are curious cases of neighbors stealing these journals out of your mailboxes, right? Sometimes they got it from private hands. Uh, Sometimes they bought it on the black market and they would uh, often tell the prices uh, for certain texts on the black market. Uh, so I was interested in sort of how they got their hands on it and also how they could tell what was true and what wasn't. So in travel accounts, right, about countries that they had never been to, uh, how would, you know, how would they know what was true and what were their methods for uh, for ascertaining the truth? Um, so I was looking at uh, this kind of information and then the other important source for reception and for audiences uh, were common books from Western art exhibitions and those were either held in Moscow or uh, when they were held in uh, the provinces uh copies of those um, uh, copies of those uh common books uh, were sent to Moscow sometimes typed up uh, so I paid attention when uh, when things were typed up and sometimes uh originals were sent to Moscow, uh in you know in pencil in a pen uh, that uh, people scribbled there um and i was also uh, i was also looking at common books from f- uh, photography exhibitions and exhibits of travel sketches by soviet writers soviet artists um and so these comments you know i i uh, the comments are very different kinds of sources from from the letters because they were always written in public and they were kind of scribbled in a matter of minutes and they have this immediacy you know of a Anger or pleasure or you know a, a repartee to somebody, right? So um, I was I was uh, looking at um, at that at that kind of immediacy, in keeping in mind that some sources, uh, you know, you, you, you know, letters you take, uh, and sometimes readers would say that you know I'm still I I wrote this letter over three nights or whatever, you know I'm still writing this letter, or sometimes they would add uh, a postscript full script and say you know. After having reread this letter, I, you know, this is what I think. Um, and for common books, they it, it's far more immediate. It's far more open. Um, the open. It's also far more repetitive. So the possibility of surveillance, because it's in the open, and the repetitiveness of certain entries were important for me because they. Um, in you know if you take very, very many of them thousands of these common books common book entries, you get to see patterns and repetitions that I thought were very uh telling and uh, kind of very important
1: well, it was fascinating to to have that um really very uh, to my way of thinking very original uh, source material throughout the book um, because there was a, an immediacy and also a um, the enthusiasm of of the spectators and the consumers comes through. And OK, let, let's dive right into the book, because I, I, I sense we have so much to talk about. Um, you begin with a very long chapter that takes your reader um, through the, the role that Western culture has played in Russian history from the time of Peter the Great. Um, and that theme seems to be repeated throughout the book. Um, and we feel like uh, there is this constant sort of struggle uh, between loving and hating Western culture um throughout your book and throughout Russian history. Can you talk a little bit about why you chose to begin uh, with that very broad uh, theme? Mm-hmm.
0: Um, well I was I was trying to locate um this moment of openness in a much longer trajectory of westernization. Uh, because for me, it was, of course, not an isolated moment, in my opinion. Um, it was a, a unique moment. It was distinguished by several features from other periods of Westernization, but it belongs in a much, I think it belongs in a much longer trajectory. And so the several points that I I try to make um, is that, of course, translation was unsurprising and central to all of these um, endeavors, uh, Westernization endeavors. Um that political reforms, right, and that reformist tradition in in Russian history over centuries was closely connected to openness and closedness to Western cultural presence. Um, that, as you said, you know, the the sort of the fear of foreignness, the xenophobia, and openness, um, you know, you could look at it as um, uh, as uh, as moments that alternate. Uh, but I don't think that that is an apt, you know, at least I. Th- I think that in fact fear of foreignness and openness uh often occurred simultaneously rather than being opposite or following each each other. Um and uh and I also tr- uh, sh try to show in the introduction um how the Thaw inherited certain ideological positions from the revolutionary 1920s, but also institutions um from the 1930s. Um now that said, um this is Again, in my opinion, this is a unique and remarkable moment in this longer history. Uh, This is a moment that actually alters the vector of the history of westernization. um, Because this is the first moment of westernization on a mass uh, scale. Um, This is no longer, as I mentioned, the cultural elite. We are talking about very broad strata of the population. These are people who who turn on the radio, say, in 1954... Uh, and then again in 1959, and they hear Yves Montan. um A little later, they turn on the, the radio and they hear uh, Ilya Ehrenberg's lectures about impressionists whom they had never seen before. Um, and we're talking about um, teachers, agronomists, um, engineers. Uh, we're talking about provincial towns, sometimes new towns that were being built. Um, sometimes dusty settlements where you know, water pipes were just being laid. But the movie theater had already been built. Uh, and people were already going to the movies, although they didn't have running water. Um, and I, you know, I don't know of another moment of such broad democratization and popularization of Western culture or another moment of so broad a distribution of uh, text and images and sounds, broad in geographical terms and uh, broad in social uh, in social terms, uh, be it only, you know, photographs and names of film stars, right? Um, so... Because, because traditionally, Western culture was always the prerogative of the elite, um, the intellectually elite, the social elite, people with titles or with wealth before the revolution, people with cultural and political capital after the revolution. Uh, but the 50s dramatically changed this, this vector established over the previous two centuries. And among the reasons for this popularization and democratization, I think, are Soviet education uh, and the way that people were assigned to jobs after graduation, where they ended up having been uh, educated in um republican or regional centers um i think one of the reasons uh, for this uh uh democratisation is also the soviet cultural product uh, project um the foundations of which were classics for the masses um very important a very important reason i think is the new media uh, radio and television play a huge role in the distribution of of Western culture. Uh, and for all these reasons, the 50s and 60s seem to me to be a special moment in this broader, longer trajectory of westernization. Um, that though is, is, is not all, uh, because this moment overlaps, and I and not accidentally, it overlaps with the reevaluation of Soviet history in this society, with reevaluation of socialist realism, of um Soviet aesthetic. Uh, 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 of Soviet aesthetics, of class morality, uh, of the very language itself, right, of political and literary and visual, uh, and very importantly, of emotional language. And this is the context into which uh, Russian translations of Western texts and films arrive. And there they begin to live the Soviet life. They begin to change under the impact of the Soviet life, and in turn, they begin to influence this revelation of values. So uh, this is also one of the reasons why I find this moment uh, unique, uh, remarkable, uh, but nonetheless part and parcel of a longer uh, of a longer history.
2: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: Yes, it seems to be a moment when politics, culture, and technology actually come together in a very unique way in Russian history to allow for this extraordinary period that you describe so well in Into See Paris and Die. Let's talk a little bit about translation, and I'm I'm interested in starting with books and then and moving on to cinema. Um, you have a chapter on each, and it is fascinating to see in your book the way Western authors are brought into Soviet culture, but reinterpreted in a way that is almost reinvention. Can you take us through how that happens and what is the significance? Because I, I feel I feel as though for my Russian friends, uh, Hemingway, Salinger, uh, Galsworthy, they do feel very possessive about these authors, as if they are a part of of their own, of their culture um, rather than imported literature. The way we might think about Tolstoy. Talk to us a little bit about this, because this is one of the more compelling chapters in in your book, um, and I I think it's um, worth lingering on for a minute.
0: Um. So in this chapter that um that you're referring to, in the chapter on literature, I single out three authors, um, and that's Hemingway, uh, Eric Murray, Remarque, and, uh, Salinger. Uh, and I, uh, I focus on these authors because as you said, in the possessiveness, right? As you said, readers, um, I follow the readers here and readers wrote about, about their books as books about us, uh, claiming possession over these texts, claiming a, a very personal, um, relationship with these texts, um, all three writers found themselves in the context of a Soviet search for a new language. They intersected in publishing policy in journals and also in readers' lives and their opinions uh, with a uh, polemic about the bureaucratization of language, about words losing their emotional power. Um, in uh, this context of the crisis of language, of language not only political but emotional, right? Uh, a certain sort of emotional inadequacy of Soviet Russian. Um and this is the time when uh when um Soviet public culture asks questions about uh eternal values, about uh you know about emotions, about love. Right? Soviet culture was rather poorly equipped to deal with in literature and in film with uh with intimate life with with love, with tender feelings as such that we're not there for the sake of building an ideal society. So let's imagine that we build this ideal society of equality, right, of economic equality. But then what do we do with, with feelings? Uh, what do we do with uh, unrequited love, with incorrect, quote-unquote, right, inc- incorrect passions, or with the pain of separation, or with the loneliness of not being understood? Um, and Soviet culture didn't have much to say about such things. Uh, when it did uh say something about feelings it was usually about life affirming emotions about enthusiasm and joy uh, uh soviet culture spoke a lot about a promethean man as a conqueror of earth and heaven and of his very uh own human re- nature um but you know what to do with a man who cannot uh conquer his feelings um uh what to do uh with a man who is captured by despair and not enthusiasm. And for Soviet readers, these authors spoke specifically to these concerns. Um, they were a revelation despite by the way the, the fact that Hemingway had been actually translated in the 30s. Um, and uh, readers discovered uh, in or rather read into these authors the questions of morality, of love, of values that were universal. Uh, they read about relationships that were not based on class um these authors spoke with readers in um in a new language but of course this new language was a new russian language unusual specifically in the context of socialist realism of the socialist press uh and also you know somewhat in the context of classical literature and so i look in in this chapter on literature i i look uh at how um books about us uh were translated and read and how some person i you know ideal personalities such as the mythological hemingway um, emerged right uh in um so the you know hemingway here is a um, he he himself spent years creating his life and his Soviet translators also created this image of a laconic hero a winner who takes nothing sort of a man who models his books on his life so the you know the byron of the 20th century and i was interested in tracing how Um, How Hemingway's image changed from the 30s to the 60s, especially because uh, this image was created by one person, uh, by um, a person who claimed monopoly on interpreting uh, Hemingway, and especially because this whole craze around Hemingway demands reflection. Because again, um, in the 50s and 60s, he was old news. Most of his novels had been published in the 30s. The stylistic discoveries um, had been processed in Soviet culture in the 1930s. So I was I was interested in how uh Hemingway, you know, interpretations of Hemingway uh change. Um Hemingway was always a tragic figure in, in Soviet uh, culture. That didn't change. Uh the person who um who shaped the image of Hemingway uh through translations and through his critical writing uh was Ivan uh Koshkin Ivan Alexandrovich Koshkin um in the 30s uh Koshkin and many others wrote about Hemingway's uh, style and wrote about subtext in Hemingway style. Uh, subtext that hides the main thing. In the f- after the mid fifties, uh, subtext was no longer simply a matter of style, and now it was interpreted differently. Uh, they still wrote about subtext. They still wrote about uh, the hidden, uh, the hidden, uh, sort of uh, the hidden, essential, important, fundamental things um, that um, that are veiled beyond uh, uh, beyond ordinary dialogues about nothing. Uh, but now um, this subtext was not just a matter of style, it was an ethical problem. In other words, the problems of style transformed into uh, a moral problem, and this was a problem of language. Um, both Hemingway and Remarque uh, were read as books about the big lie, about the devaluation of language um about the only salvation being in eternal values like friendship and love. And these were abstract universal values rather than class based And when it came to Remark, you know uh, things were as bad with class morality uh in Remark as in Hemingway. Um in Remark uh war is always tragic, there are no good or bad wars, uh and Allah is always dirty and his heroes are afraid of pathos and elevated discourse. Uh, and the salvation is in in love. Um, readers' letters to Remark, they wrote many letters to Remark, which weren't sent to Remark, but which ended up in Soviet institutions. Uh, and they wrote many letters about Remark. And these letters are about love, they're about intimate life, they're about Remark's special sensitivity uh, to emotional crises. Um, people wrote to him as a consoler of lost souls, as a person who was capable of understanding despair um they wrote to him as a teacher of you know of feelings, so that those sort of emotional uh and moral problems uh were so important for readers and rendered these um essentially foreign you know foreign authors uh into something about us into into books about us and then there was also the issue of language itself um and uh this is where uh perhaps best uh uh the, the text that best captures the problem of language and the ways to reanimate uh uh Russian you know literary Russian uh was um Catcher in the Rye. Uh it was published at the end of, 19, of, of 1960. Uh and uh the language of the Russian translation looked like this sort of unbelievable, unbelievable language never before seen in print. Uh, at least, not in the Soviet uh, in the Soviet decades in anybody's living memory. Uh, and the reality was that it wasn't some sort of, you know, some sort of terrible jargon or terrible argo that uh, critics uh, blame or praise the translator uh, for including on the printed page. Um, the translator created her own language that was based on colloquial um, on colloquial substandard idiom. Uh, practically all the words, I was interested in this, so I went to the, you know, normative Soviet dictionaries, and practically all the words that so shocked readers at the time could be found in normative Soviet dictionaries. Um, And this is the colloquial language that people used in the street and that they found in this book and that made this book uh, a book about us. So, you know, books about us you know, that were received as books about us. They intersected with these domestic problems and domestic polemics. Um, These polemics are long forgotten, uh, but Western books about us spoke to or against Soviet literature and journalism and were read uh, by analogies with uh, Soviet debates or as a compensation for something uh, that was seen as lacking in Soviet literature, uh, like the exploration of darker emotions Um, of feelings of despair, uh, explorations of intimate life.
1: Do you think, Eleanor, that um, in the post-war era, Remark and Hemingway were helping Soviet students to um, kind of process their grief about the Second World War?
0: I'm not, you know, I'm not so sure. um, I'm not so sure it is about the war. Um, In the Western context, in the interwar uh, both european and american context these books were about the war um and i think this is where translation and the very transference across borders linguistic ideological borders um changes the the texts uh because they were not these texts were not read as as you know a statement about pacifism uh they were not read as um as, you know they were not read as, as as a condemnation of um of war itself the way they were read the way remark was read in interwar europe and the way remarks books were burned by the nazis for that very reason um in the soviet context i think what mattered uh were the 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 exploration into universal values uh and an escape from um you know, from um what one of the things that's that so mattered both in Remark and in Hemingway was the but also and also in neorealist cinema, was the um material specificity, right? The escape from um from grand slogans into the into an elaboration of um material objects into sort of the concreteness of things, um, and this emphasis on things, the emphasis on uh universal um on universal morality uh the uh the emphasis both uh you know both authors uh, uh, both remark and hemingway deal not only with war uh but with love and when they deal with war they also deal with love and very often their love stories are set uh either at war or in the after so you know uh, a farewell to arms, or in the aftermath of war, like that favorite book of Soviet readers uh, that nobody reads in the West. Three comrades. Um, it's it's really in the uh, in uh, in the 1920s. It's in the aftermath of war. It's set amid depression. It's set amid uh, uh, the economic turmoil in uh, the the 19 mid mid to late 1920s Berlin. Um, but it is a story of friendship and love. Um, and um, both authors often have, you know, a, a lone protagonist and his beloved woman and uh, always a tragic love. So romantic in the sense of impossible, senseless and a love that ends badly. Uh, they also explore friendships. They usually have three, you know, kind of three friends uh, or three friends and a girl. Um, it both. Both three comrades and also Hemingway's, um, uh, Hemingway's novels sometimes have three friends and a girl traveling around. So these are the kinds of themes that I think were more important for Soviet readers, specifically in the context of the 50s and 60s, than um, the condemnation of of war.
1: I'm charmed by the idea, Eleanor, that all these people wrote these letters to remark, and and there you were to open them.
0: Yeah. Do you think I, anyone
1: had opened them?
0: I I don't uh, I don't know. I mean, they were certainly filed by somebody there. I don't know. Uh,
1: Perhaps you okay. were the first person to open them.
0: Very very possibly, or maybe other other historians, but certainly not, uh, or other scholars, but certainly not remark, remark well, itself. That's, and, that's uh, the
1: drama. The drama yeah. of the archive, isn't it?
0: Yeah. yeah. It's a. It it is you, you know it's it's just um there are so remark was such an obsession and sometimes people wrote i mean people wrote to him people wrote poetry to him sometimes very lengthy um you know very lengthy amateur uh, poemas you know entire you know long poems that people uh that people wrote to him uh people wrote in search of his photograph um because there was very um you know there's very little information uh, available about him and very little uh, very little imagery uh you know they were trying ultimately the uh the main uh, cultural newspaper literaturata uh, published a, a kind of a smudged photograph of him uh, but people wrote in search of a photograph of some kind of biographical information they you know this is kind of fan culture where they want to know more about their 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 star their hero um, I need something for the red corner uh, p- possibly for their own red corner, possibly for something you know to put um to put on the bookshelf kind of beyond the you know uh, uh b- behind the glass uh on the bookshelf or or to hang you know to to hang up their his portrait on the wall um you know in a dorm room um but they they didn't they often did not get his portrait and one wasn't available and um that was also, part of the frustration that they wanted to get, part of everybody's frustration. This is just an emblematic, issue, an emblematic story. Part of everybody's frustration, and one of the interesting ways in which people read, because there was such a deficit of information, along with other deficits, people try to kind of crumb by crumb accumulate a certain picture, um, and try to, you know, go to many sources and try to put many, many sources available to them, you know, bits and pieces available to them. Uh, into some sort of coherent picture, and remark is just one one story of the many in which people were trying to um, get information.
1: Right. Well, if if reading um, an author is a very intimate thing, cinema, of course, is a is a group event. Um, you know that takes place uh, to some extent in the public square, and you have a separate chapter on the import of cinema. And I, I think we can't underestimate the. Um, the role of cinema as a tool in the Soviet and Bolshevik era, but take us inside um, the, the thaw era, what kind of films are being brought in and how are they being made uh, for us, for Soviet citizens?
0: Um, Well, I, um, one of my, my points there is that they never quite became films for us or about us. Uh, They were, uh, they were always foreign. Uh, they were always intriguing for being foreign. Uh, they, always, they always had this sort of this, um, this conflict between Russian language, and they were usually, for broad release, films were usually dubbed. So I talk about that process.
1: Uh, why did, can I just interrupt yeah, you and yeah. ask you, um, because uh, having lived in Russia, I find this very frustrating, but why dubbed instead of subtitled? Um, that seems to be a decision that was made and stuck to over a long period of time and still um things are being dubbed. Uh even, even television and um why why dubbed instead of subtitles?
0: Things are still being dubbed when um when distributors expect to get uh to get profits or when they think that the picture is worth the is has a, that um uh has uh cultural merit and um and is worth the investment because dubbing is more more expensive obviously than subtitling um very many films uh, uh today are being voiced over so it's there is a difference because right with the voice over you hear uh you usually have one or two voices uh for the man and the woman uh, sometimes you know the 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 poorer the the voice over the uh the fewer the voices <laughs> the fewer the voices you hear some you know in really poor ones you sometimes hear just one you know one voice one guy, uh, does it yeah. all uh but you hear the original uh as kind of a faint echo uh dubbing completely recreates the soundtrack and part of the the artistry of soviet dubbing was to recreate even the noises and i i um, had the, the the privilege and the the pro- and the pleasure to interview some dubbing directors and uh and a dubbing actress a famous dubbing actress um right before she she passed away and um she, uh she um told me how the, the you know how things were recre how noises various noises were recreated in the studio obviously you couldn't go into the street because there are too many noises there uh b- but when they needed to capture a specific noise how they would repurpose um ordinary objects uh you know rice and water uh and chandeliers and ice and whatever you know ordinary things around them silk uh to create various right and sort of uh you know thinking poetically uh, about analogies between among different noises how they would use uh, ordinary objects to recreate um the noises in in the film uh but their 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 aim was to recre- recreate the soundtrack entirely um uh, so that no trace of the original sound remains, um, and they made that decision. That decision had two um, uh, two reasons. Uh, one uh, was that um, influential uh, influential uh, Soviet directors, film directors, uh, 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 emerging from the legacy of the of the uh, Soviet avant garde. Uh, cinematic avant-garde uh, believed in the primacy and in the believed in the primacy and in the uh, and in independent value of the image on the screen. And when uh, so they feared that when you put the subtitles, when you insert text on the bottom, it destroys. They called it m- a monstrosity. It destroys uh, the the picture itself. It destroys the image, the frame. Uh, and and that had primacy and integrity in its own uh, artistic right. Um, so that was one of the reasons they didn't want something running on the bottom. The other reason, uh, and one that is so fascinating, and it, you know, I never, I didn't know about this, and I, and and it was in the, it was in the documents, uh, and it was uh, quite fascinating to read about it. And that is from the point of view of political authorities and distributors, um, or the distributing agencies, one, um, and then local distributors. But the the um, the dubbing, the dubbing decisions were made uh in uh in uh, moscow um and um, the idea there uh was that uh the texts are difficult to read the texts on the bottom are difficult to read and uh it would ruin the aesthetic experience for many many viewers because they would have to move their eyes too quickly and process both the image so that their eyes would have this kind of schizophrenic movement. They would have to process both the image and the text on the bottom and put those together very quickly. And so because and that dis- because that is inconvenient and unpleasant, uh the films that, that uh the distributor wanted to put in broad circulation uh would be dubbed uh to uh, make sure that people can actually follow follow the the storyline and watch the film rather than strain their eyes to read the subtitles when and this is the interesting part <laughs> i thought this was the interesting part uh, when they they um, didn't when the, the distributor didn't want people to see the film uh but for for sensorial reasons uh but want but needed to put it in circulation because uh because these uh the distribution of films was governed by uh, cinematic trade agreements with various countries uh, when they needed to put the film into circulation but they wanted to limit uh, the number of people who would see it they wanted to limit to create kind of artificial limits for the audience um, they would subtitle the film and they explicitly saw subtitles as a sensorial device right it would ward off people people wouldn't be able to you know follow along they wouldn't enjoy it they wouldn't come to watch it um so it was you know fulfilling your your tr- cinematic trade agreement but at the same time making sure that uh you know the audience uh the audience doesn't get to experience audiences don't get to experience the films uh there was another yeah it's it's absolutely i i had no i had no idea and then i was reading these documents and i and it made these choices right between dubbing and subtitles um, uh, it made these it put these choices in a completely different light because i came to the archives having read the having read quite a lot of literature on secondary literature on these choices in other places and the choice between subtitling and dubbing uh is usually interpreted as a uh a, um a, a kind of uh national you know nationalism driven choice uh so when you want uh, films to, to when you want to limit foreign speech in movie theaters for sort of national, you know, the reasons of national culture and the the nation state, um, then you uh, uh, dub films. And then, you know, when you don't really care uh, about, about those reasons, you're okay with subtitling. And there's a, a whole literature about uh, these decisions being made by different countries in different time periods, and which ones were driven by nationalism. So I you know, that's, that's the literature I, you know, that's the kind of the example of how to understand the choices that I had when I came to the archives. And then there I, I am reading completely something else. And that, um, that put the decision between dubbing and subtitling under a different, you know, in in, in a different light. Um, So that was very interesting.
1: That is fascinating. But of course, there's no dubbing a youth festival, is there?
0: Uh, the, uh, in what in what in what sense
1: <laughs> you you can't dub a youth festival? And I wanted to move to the part of your book when you talk uh, very vividly and very uh, you bring to life the Moscow Youth Festival of 1957. Um, there's a ton of engrossing detail about how the festival was de- how they decided to have the festival and the challenges that were inherent in executing it. Am I right that this was the first big international event? in post-war Russia, in post-war Soviet Union.
0: Uh this was the first, I would say this was the first mega event. Uh because the Soviet Union certainly had international events. Uh, but they were leftist uh communist international events. Um this is um, this is the first um you know this is the first mega event. Uh, um that you know brought the the, uh, the kind of the cliched figure is 34,000 uh, foreigners um, for two weeks of, uh, brought them to Moscow for two weeks of cultural exhibitions and athletic events, performances, um, and political and cultural debate. Um, I, I, the um, the 34,000 people, um, th- this figure, uh, uh, I, I think, high, I mean, it needs sort of un, unpackaged, it hides several, several interesting um, aspects of it. Uh, one of which was that uh, it brought 34,000 people to Moscow, uh, but to get to Moscow, they had to move through the Soviet Union. Uh, and they were moving usually on on trains with various stopovers in uh, Soviet provincial cities, both on the way to Moscow and from Moscow. And um, the archives contained their itineraries uh, what's you know where they where they stopped where they made stopovers for how long um uh, who they encountered how they wandered off trains or um what happens what happened on those trains um so that's one of the you know it's a it's a moscow centric event but they had to but the these delegates had to move through the soviet union um the other uh the other interesting reality that um that needs to be added into this picture is that in addition to these 34,000 uh, people and the Moscovites themselves um there were 120,000 uh, delegates from the union republics um, wow. who came in various shifts of a couple of days so in addition to the people who lived there uh there were people from across the soviet union who uh came as official delegates uh and then there are also people making their way um you know unofficially just to hang out with friends and see this um this event. Uh, So it it didn't just touch Moscow, it touched um, um, many other places and many other people who otherwise would not have uh, too many chances to encounter uh, foreigners in uh, in their daily life and in their cities. Um, And the third thing that I wanted to mention about these 34,000 people is that it was a very heterogeneous uh, group of people. And uh, they were not uh, just communists. They were not just, it included you know it included uh a, a small group of um, of italian fascists it included a, a group of uh british empire loyalists it included um you, you know it included all so all sorts of you know christian democrats all sorts of po- political you know all sorts of uh, other um people belonging to other Uh, Parties to non-communist parties and also people completely indifferent to politics who were there for the cultural event or just because it was a cool experience and they really wanted to go. And, uh, you know, and they they found a a cheap way to travel across Europe and, and to this place that they often thought was so mysterious
1: and it, and it was a cool event i mean there were there were many sort of open air parties and um events and exchanges and do you think that it um achieved the goals that were set for it
0: um it depends on how you see uh, i mean it depends on how you see the goals um you know the, the one of the goals was to um announce the soviet union as an open society um I'm not sure it achieved that goal. Um uh, I'm not sure it convinced anybody or many people. Um it, it and again it depends, you know, whether somebody's coming from the United States or from France or from the Federal Republic versus um, you know, representatives, uh de- delegates coming from um Egypt or delegates coming from uh you know one of the coolest delegations one of the kind of cool you know propagandistically coolest delegations uh which was everywhere in the uh in the uh, in the news a very small one just a, just a handful of people uh was from the newly independent Ghana uh so right if you have you know it depends on who uh who you're speaking to uh whether you're going to to convince them about the uh the benefits of socialism or not uh, and some people were certainly convinced and others and others were not uh one of the um one of the thy sources uh for for this uh for this very question um are the daily reports uh, uh compiled by um soviet overseers and translators on various uh mundane really day-to-day uh scandals and fights and all sorts of arguments and debates the delegations had with, you know, inside the kind of inside their dorm rooms um, and uh, their day on their daily behavior. Um, So, you know, little little scandals and fights and, um, and with, you know, when people would argue uh, deep into the night or when, when there would be a fist fight um, those kinds of things would be uh, related in um, narrated in, uh, in these, in these daily reports and translators and various overseers i mean there are people kind of follow following the delegates around uh but but there you know these the, you know daily reports with names who did what who went there uh sometimes delegates would wander off into places they weren't supposed to wander off um so those you know those materials are there sometimes you know sometimes uh they would meet up with people they were not supposed to be meeting up with so that, those you know and the discussions so i'm not sure uh you you know you can't you can't talk, talk i think about su- success in some undifferentiated sense uh i think it's important to to um think about the per- the goals that uh festival organizers set up for themselves and also who they appealed to who you know who they were trying to convince and what who their audiences were uh in um in the long term i i think the f- is uh, sort of this is not the goal that this or this was not a goal not one of a, uh, of the goals uh that the festival organizers set for themselves uh but it was an important consequence of um the festival uh and that is that it left in numerous traces in soviet life and specifically in moscow it left material traces in the city you could still see today uh, yeah. entire neighborhoods names of streets buildings um if you uh, i i'm sure you know the the um the uh uh com- the kind of the complex of hotels around the um the botany garden uh yes. those were built uh and and i think
1: prospect mira as well
0: uh, yes a number a number of those um also on the you know neighborhoods that were colonized, you know neighborhoods that today are within moscow city limits and that um uh, were colonized for the festival, and things were built there, and you know, wooden structures mm. were taken down, and trees were um, chopped off, and uh, you know, hotels were erected um, there. Uh, communication lines, various infrastructure, you know, infrastructural development of the city. Um, so it left these material traces. It left colors and sounds and songs. And when you interview people, uh, old people remember this as an outburst of color. Right. they speak about color before they you know before anything you know jazz or whatever that you know uh westerners often write about uh when they think about the festival before anything else people mention color um it left uh, a sense of possibilities and openness uh, a sense of a world so much bigger than the soviet map um the festival was you know the the first of of um of uh, these mega events that began the, the transformation of Moscow as a place for leftist causes and progressive as a beacon of progressive causes into a city of international mega events like the Olympic Games um, and various, you know, various others like international exhibitions, competitions, trade fairs um, and trade fairs and uh, various uh, exhibitions became so prominent in um, the 60s and 70s. Uh, so this is kind of your milestone moment on the road to um, the transformation of the city into a place of international mega events.
1: Well, which it has never stopped
0: being. And it has never, right. Uh, international Film Festival, uh, right? The Moscow uh-huh. Film Festival. Um, and it that, it, it, that was um, established in 1959, but it has a direct uh, connection uh to the 57 youth festival and in fact the documents on the first documents about the 1959 uh about the Moscow film festival uh were filed uh, uh were filed in the you know in the materials on the 57 youth festival uh so th- there is a direct connection between these two and you know the Moscow film festival is still um intact you know it's still there and it still invites uh, Invites great, great films um, from so across the world. So this was the beginning of yeah. many
1: different things.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. I, we, you know, this is this is a great discussion. We're coming to the end of our time, though, and I don't want to, um, I don't want to miss out talking about the um, the end of your book, which kind of shifts into a more melancholy tone. Um, you take us through the 1990s and really. Do a deep dive into those who had had this cultural awakening in the Thaw and then emigrate from the Soviet Union when it becomes possible to the West that they have imagined for so many years. And it doesn't work out that well in many cases. And can you talk us through that a little bit? Um, I, I I felt like there was a distinct kind of shift in in voice when we got to your epilogue um i wondered if it had anything to do with your own personal experience um but why do you think that for so many soviet emigres to the west the eden turned out to be somewhat tainted i,
0: I i'm you know i'm not sure it turned out to be um to be t- um i'm not sure it turned out to be tainted it it was uh, the eden was a utopian world that was part and parcel of the Soviet world. And what I try to do, and you're right, there is a, there is a distinct shift in, in tone and in voice and in emotional coloration in the epilogue. And what I try to do in the epilogue is to suggest that uh, the Soviet West disintegrated together with the Soviet Union. Um, the Soviet Union was a particular kind of informational space governed by deficit, by informational hierarchy, um, by gradations of access and the paucity and fragmented quality of information, uh, the closed borders, right, the impossibility to experience that life beyond Soviet borders firsthand, maintained the vision of a beautiful life, be- maintained this this Western uh, uh, utopia. Um, people, you know, I've seen in other scholarship uh, that this this moment, particularly when people are talking about the nineteen nineties, in russia um uh, scholars call it disappointment um i i don't i don't call it disappointment i call it dispossession um because uh all of these things that people have claimed possession over um were now revealed to be something or are now revealed to be something else um i and i don't call it disappointment because uh because it's a collapse uh it's you know the Soviet West disintegrates together with the Soviet Union that had given birth to it. Um, the, the uh the story of immigration in the epilogue um uh, is both a reality and also an analogy of the end of the Soviet Union itself. And I was I was really struck by um by how by how close uh or how similar the experiences of Soviet emigres in the 70s, the immediate experiences of Soviet emigres in the 70s and 80s, uh, how similar they were uh, to the experience or experiences of everybody else when the Soviet Union disintegrated. So I was struck by these parallels in terms of language and work and everyday life and the loss of certainty and stability, the loss of, uh, uh, you know, the the story of, 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 fall uh and then eventual rise uh the stories of hopes for uh you know uh, once again for a better for a brighter uh, a brighter future um and um and so i um this is how i i use immigration i tell these two parallel uh and analogous what I see as analogous stories uh and again i i, I think that this the the dispossession the collapse of the soviet Version of the of the West uh, had to do with the Soviet Union itself and with how those uh, how that Soviet West how that Soviet Western utopia emerged. Um, so, for for example, you know, thinking about the Soviet information space and the kinds of things that arrived, the Western imports that began to arrive from the mid 1950s on and and never really stopped. Um, at the same time as they were arriving, uh, Soviet press was a of course, commenting on um, on Western countries. Uh, and, the, and what Soviet press said about the West was highly formulaic and very often negative. Um, people increasingly did not believe those formulas, and they constructed a Western world that was the opposite of Soviet portrayals. So, for example, if newspapers described, you know, homeless wearing rags and hunting through dumpsters in capitalist cities, people very often took it for a lie and that meant the opposite there were no dumpsters and no homeless and that all the streets were clean and proper and people were young and beautiful as they were portrayed in the films so following this contrarian opposing logic people created uh, a vision of the West the the beautiful Soviet West inseparable from Soviet uh, propaganda and also from the Western imports and how those two aspects uh, Western imports and uh, and Soviet official publications interacted. And I think that's part of the tragedy that I describe in the epilogue, um, the discovery that uh, at least some stories that the Soviet press told uh, were probably true.
1: <laughs> it's. I, I think that's right. And you, the last lines of your book say that um, it's very difficult for uh, to to live in the West of their imagination and the Russia of their affection, to live, in other words, in Paris without leaving St. Petersburg, and I sense that you feel this tension can never be resolved. Is that the case?
0: You know, I it's it, it's more of a uh, it's more of a ph- philosophical rather than a historical question, and I'm not sure I have a a satisfactory a satisfactory uh answer. Um uh I can conceive of a, I, you know I can imagine a future in which it could be resolved. Uh and that would be an optimistic uh portrayal, an optimistic um imagination. Um but um but this uh this sort of conf- you know conflict between um the you know what what earlier in one of your earlier questions you called love and hate, um, I I think those two co- co- coexist you know in terms of historical periods those two co- coexist, um, I don't think these moments of love disappear without a trace they leave like the festival they leave uh, a language they leave uh, ideas images they leave loan words you know the multiplicity you know the thousands of Russian loanwords. words. Um, and they leave they leave color and they leave um you know they they leave uh texts and styles uh in this in the case of the of the uh mid 1950s westernization uh that uh westernization defined to an enormous degree um the aims and interests and predilections lifestyles of at least two generations Um, It defined, I also think it defined a tendency or fit into a tendency, a a more global and certainly a pan-European one that continues to this very day. Um, The centrality of consumer objects as a way of, uh, uh, you know, a a competition or a cultural and systemic competition. Uh, The centrality of new that we talked about of new media and technologies as channels of Western culture, Uh, the broadest distribution in the social sense. Um, the importance of tourism and travel as one of the formative aspects of of the modern world and of westernization more broadly. Um, And that's why I have this chapter on travelogues, not on actual travel, but on virtual travel, um, because uh, tourism as an idea and tourism as a possibility um, were so important um, in the second half of the 20th century. And after the end of the Soviet Union, um, Russians increasingly began to avail themselves of those Um, you know of those opportunities um so i you know thinking about the present day um you know the the changes of the last several decades have been so dramatic and so profound in no small part thanks to uh the new technologies right to the immediacy of the internet to cell phones right to skype right i mean you can live out any experience vicariously uh Thanks to new mapping possibilities, right? I mean, all sorts of things that were so that came with such a strife with so much effort in the 50s and 60s and 70s uh, and and even 80s are taken for granted today. Um and, and actually you ask me about my personal experience, um, and uh this is you know, many I, I see many people, especially the younger generation in Russia, taking this for granted um and not realizing that the world could be some other, you know, would be could be different, um, but I very well remember a different world where, you know, you dial, uh, you dial zero from the United States, and you wait for the operator for a very long time, and four hours later, you would hear in Russian somewhere far, so far off, like it's a, you know, it's coming out of space. You would hear, you know, uh, speak. You're on the line, right? And and today, you know, you. Pick up your cell phone. You can access nearly every musical album online. You can see practically any image and read practically any uh, text in your own language or in the language of the original. You know, you get the blogosphere and you get new mapping possibilities of every, you know, of every corner of the world. Um, and um, I, I think those things are not to be taken for granted. They, but at the same time, I think they emerge out of the world of the mid '50s. Again, the, the importance of tourism and new technologies uh, for dissemination of 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 the world, even when you have the sort of the constraints of physical immobility, uh, the importance of new technologies for dissemin, disseminating the world and bringing it to your home.
1: Well, and your your book brings that urgency and that importance uh, very much to the fore. And I, I highly recommend listeners who don't remember what it's like to dial zero and then wait for the good doc uh, to dive in to, to see Paris and die and um, feel the urgency and the importance. I'm afraid that's kind of all we have time for at the moment. But before we go, Eleanor, can you tell listeners what um, what are you working on right now um, in your academic work and uh what are your next plans for a book or a lecture series?
0: I'm um, I, I working on on two projects. Um, one is, a, a at the moment, appears slightly smaller to me than the other. It's an interwoven and parallel histories of Russian and Soviet languages in the 20th centuries and how the normalization and standardization of the formal properties of Russian supported the ossification of the Soviet political language. Um, that's sort of one... And, the larger the larger project is very different um, from the language project uh, it's a it's a longer book length study of uh, it's called Weary Sun uh, and it explores the history of Tango and its creators and audiences in uh, Eastern Europe and Stalinist Russia in the interwar years. Oh, that sounds fascinating. And I look at the biographies of people who you know tango composers and performers um, at various communities. Russian language communities on the borders of the Soviet Union, particularly in Riga and Warsaw, um, who created most Stalinist tangos and how they were imported back to the Soviet Union Um, and again disseminated thanks to a particular kind of recording technology.
1: Well, I hope when you're finished with both, you'll come back and talk to us about it. Um, oh, I'd
0: love to. On the New we'll Books that
1: work. work. Well, thank you so much for this scintillating and fascinating discussion. Let me remind listeners that To See Paris and Die is available wherever books are sold. It's also been shortlisted for the Pushkin Prize, which will be awarded in just about a week's time when this goes to press. Eleanor, let me wish you luck on that um, and with all your continued fascinating work.
0: Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed this conversation a lot.
1: Oh, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks very much for listening to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jennifer Iremieva. Until next time.